Oh. I'm a mess. I got sick again. What did you get? (laughs) Just a cold. I've actually gotten over it pretty quickly. Like, I still have some lingering, like, congestion and stuff. But, yeah. (laughs) I'm just like, how is it that, like, I managed to get sick right when we were planning on recording? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Seriously. Seriously. That's all sick ass, you know? <laughs> it just well, knows. my my kind of crappy news is I I kind of bought an expensive calligraphy pen set at Michael's to treat myself, and I either just seriously have some issues with reading instructions, or it's <laughs> defective, and that really both of them bum me out. I don't know which one I prefer. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I got all this stuff, and I can't even write with this stupid pen. I'm holding it right now, and I don't know why it doesn't work. Oh no! But at least is I'm it- not sick. <laughs> So one of those felt tip calligraphy pens? No, or? in fact, I think I should just kind of. I think I should. I think I should start small. I don't know why I was so hell bent on getting these. I mean, they're nice supplies, and I already know I'm interested in it, so I'm okay spending the money on it. But I mean, I'm. I'm skipping like a lot of uh, beginner steps, you know. Oh, I kind of jumped yeah. right into it and started reading from the book and started copying fonts and stuff. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like I have some backtracking to do. I've just kind of gotten ahead of myself a little bit yeah what you need to do is unsubscribe from the penmanship porn penmanship porn that's all i want to be i want to be like all of them they're so cool i know they're they really are i follow a few people on snapchat too because i'm a loser but they're cool (laughs) yeah okay i have no way to segue into the show should we just do it yes all right let's do it okay Welcome to Kitten Whiskers and Kanye, the podcast where we talk about the history of and take a not-too-deep look at some of our favorite pop culture things. I'm Audrey Stratton. I'm Carmen Thorley. And today we're talking about King Arthur. (laughs) I have been sick and I have no witty segue into it today, (laughs) so we're just going to jump right into the topic. Let's jump in. Let's do it. So one of the first things I think about with King Arthur is I watched Sword in the Stone when I was younger. And that song, the music makes, or what is it, money? No, music makes the world go around, right? Oh, yeah. That's I just forgot been about that perpetually stuck in my head for my entire life. But yeah, I, <laughs> um, we didn't talk about it though in our little Disney fairy tale thing because I guess it's maybe not technically a fairy tale. Like, was King Arthur actually like a real historical figure? Um, so I feel like. That's a question that everybody kind of asks at some point in their childhood or teenage years, because, like, I know I certainly did. Mm-hmm. Um, and they probably don't get a straight answer. And it's easy to assume that, like, no, he wasn't, seeing as how most stories involving him and his knights have some sort of, like, fantasy element to them. Yeah. But as you grow and you learn more and more legends and learn that most myths and legends have at least, like, a sliver of historical truth to yeah. them. The question at just set in historical comes setting. up again. Yeah. Yeah. Like, was King Arthur, or at least a king that was like him, real? Mm-hmm. So, as a definitive answer, I will tell you, no. Oh. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, well, that's a bummer, but okay. 
How do they? How do they know for sure? Well, okay. So there's a few things that kind of can inform us of of that fact. So like. The first one is that we don't really have a solid historical record of him. There is a record uh, that exists of a general that lived about the same time that King Arthur would have lived. And he was that kind of like benevolent noble kind of guy. Um, And it may have just kind of evolved from there Mm -hmm. into, you know, hey, here's this king that existed in Britain that led these knights of the round table and he was very idealistic and right. so on and so forth. So that's the first piece of evidence. Um, and then I don't know, I guess it's along the same lines. Um, we do have records of some Britain people existing actually even before the time of Arthur. And uh, I'm going to be a little bit bitter here. We're going to do like a 10 minute boogers and bad drivers. <laughs> Uh, okay. mini episode here. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry, because I want to talk very briefly about Bodica. She Ooh, is... I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you may not know now, but you are going to learn and you're going to be like, how did I not know about her? I want to rage with you. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. You know how Rome wanted to just take over the world? Uh, yeah. you know, around the beginning of the modern era. Sure. That included part of Britain. And when they reached the Isle of Britain, um, they actually almost completely gave up because of this woman. Now, what happened was they got to the island and they started taking over. And about the same time that they started taking over, uh, this woman, Bodica, her father died. Mm-hmm. And she was actually entitled to take over the tribe and, like, the land and the wealth and stuff. Well, the Romans didn't recognize that because she's a woman. Right, sure. And women don't own property and stuff. Story of history. So, yeah, pretty much. So they did some really terrible things to her and her daughters and just kind of, like, raised the village and moved on. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Bodica was like, um, no, (laughs) this does not jive with me. She ended up gathering like tens of thousands of men. Actually, it almost numbered 200,000 at like the biggest group. Oh, so you could technically say hundreds of thousands. (laughs) I I could. No, I mean, I know it's not entirely accurate because almost 200,000 is not technically plural. uh, Oh, right. Anyway, so she ended up gathering these men And she just did not hold back in her revenge against the Romans. So she went against all of these armies and towns. She actually, like, literally burned towns to the ground. Mm -hmm. Like, there is archaeological evidence (laughs) of basically, like, six inches of solid clay where these towns used to be that are just, like, flat on the ground. Oh my gosh. So, yes, she literally burned these towns to the ground. She defeated the armies, and when she defeated the armies, like she was brutal to them. Yeah. Like skulls on her chariot and cheese. Like yeah. Like Game of Thrones esque kind of stuff. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. That is never a compliment by the way. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going into details because That's fine. We'll say that. You know, I I didn't 
for never. Put a disclaimer, but um, there's a really good entry. I'm going to link to it on the Twitter from a website called Rejected Princesses, which, first of all, how could you not get lost in a <laughs> website called Rejected Princesses right. anyway? Um, but it, it talks about her and what she did in right. more detail. So anyway, we do actually have historical record of her, and that's why... I personally think that King Arthur was not real because, like, if we can have evidence of someone who actually existed in the first century, then why don't we have evidence of someone who existed in the, like, sixth sure. century? Yeah. So, anyway, I'm I'm a little bitter about it just because, like, here's this really awesome woman and why do we have no movie adaptations of her? <laughs> Why, like, why do we have a thousand adaptations of King Arthur? Right. And why does Braveheart exist? Well, I mean, the story of William Wallace is a pretty good one. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> like, why is it that we're only just now getting all of these really awesome movies with, like, super awesome female leads? Yeah. And we have, like, historical women to base these stories off of. Yeah. You know, Boudicca was fierce so here's here's my boogers and bad drivers moment is Mm -hmm. that like i think that if we had done a movie on bodica instead of on william wallace wonder woman who would have existed like 10 years (laughs) earlier and we would have already had a black widow movie oh yeah and (laughs) all about the movies (laughs) yeah we'd already have a captain marvel movie i know it's coming out next year but we'd already have it so excited for that one you're right I all of this would have so happened excited. much earlier i mean we yes. could have been as little as little girls been enlightened by a lot more a lot more strong female representation yes exactly but instead we've got king arthur <laughs> who <Yeah>. wasn't even real <laughs> wasn't even real <laughs> but this is a kitten whiskers and kanye episode because it's still fun to talk about. Yeah, it's a cool story. So, <laughs> um, I am going to go a little bit into like why we have the myth and why it's been standing for so long. Because if you think about it, like there's no other like definitive myth that has existed since 500 CE, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, think they about just, it. They can't get any older. It's like a rule. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to understand why the myth of King Arthur was created, we do have to talk about some kind of dry history stuff for a couple of minutes. That's okay. I love history. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm going to say that a lot more enthusiastically then. To understand why the myth of King Arthur was created, we do have to talk about some kind of dry history stuff for a couple of minutes. Yay! <laughs> that sounded really sarcastic. I liked it, though. <laughs> oh, thanks. It'll get our listeners all amped. Yes. <laughs> so for about four centuries, from about like 350 CE to 780 CE, Britain had a really hard time keeping invaders, and specifically the Saxons, away from their lands. Mm-hmm. Now, I already talked a little bit about the Roman invasion. Um, they did not give up despite Boudicca's efforts. She ended up ultimately losing to them, but she did keep them away from like the most northern parts of the island. Mm-hmm. So along the southern parts of the island, the the Romans were occupying and 
um, actually creating just as much of a cultural invasion as it was a militaristic invasion. So over the years, because they were occupying for literally centuries, um, the gentry among the native Brits kind of raised themselves up by adopting a lot of the clothing and beliefs of the Romans. And as a result, um, in the area that the Romans inhabited, it became what we picture as medieval England a lot faster than the rest of the island. Mm -hmm. You know, so you think about like the castles and the thatched roof cottages. (laughs) That reminds me of Homestar. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So we think of that and that's a lot, um, that has a lot to do with the Romans. So even by the time that the Romans left completely in eh, about 425 CE, the culture was completely British by that point because, like, it had just integrated so well that there was no, like, difference between the two. Mm-hmm. The natives in that area looked at their neighbors to the north and the south, which at the time were called the Saxons and the Picts, and they saw them as very savage and primal and unrefined. Um, now, <clears throat> life for the Brits was not easy dealing with these constant invasions. And there are multiple accounts of different battles won or lost, um, and, like, land lost or gained, etc., etc. But ultimately, it's still, like, hurt, you know? Yeah. For a really, really long time. Like, several hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, we we think about Britain now, and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, the island that took over almost the entire world at some point. But, like, that was only two or three hundred years ago. Yeah. And in fact, it's been in this century that there are still countries that are, like, freeing themselves from Britain. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy to think about. Yeah, it's weird. But yeah, but before that, like, they were really struggling. So the first mention of King Arthur didn't really happen until a few hundred years after some of these battles against the Saxons would have happened. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's kind of a clue going back to, like, is he real or not? Right. Um, That he's a fictional character rather than a historical person of interest. He was also, for some of the earliest mentions of him, not a king, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, but a commander of a really large military force, which makes sense given that a lot of the focus at the time was like, what battles are we winning? What battles are we losing? So Mm -hmm. that's another thing that kind of clues us in. Right. Cool. So people really liked this idea of a single figure that rallied some of the bravest men in the nation and fought against the savage Saxons in the north and the threat of the Picts in the south. So the myth kind of grew from there. Um, So like one historian would write one thing and then a poet would expand upon that thing and then a storyteller would add their embellishments Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So that's how we kind of get that happening. Cool. That's not called oral tradition, right? Oral tradition is literally like storytelling from mouth to mouth. Um, So it ended up being a mix of both oral storytelling uh and oral tradition and written tradition. And it was like telephone. All this stuff just kind of got mixed in with it and all that. And there's different renditions. Yeah, Yeah, my... uh, the, The... version of the uh, King Arthur story I'm most familiar with would be Sir Thomas Mallory, um, Mort D'Arthur. I studied that in college and it was, uh, it was a mouthful for sure. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. It's just the language is really, it's, I, I, I have a hard time with medieval literature, I guess is my point. It's really yeah. a beautiful story, just hard to grasp a little bit. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's and it's actually interesting that you bring that up because that's um, one of the first like concrete tellings of King Arthur mm -hmm. the myth, rather than like you know here's a tale here or a tale there of King right. Arthur or one of his knights. It was published in the late 1400s, mm -hmm. and um, he did write it into one big like narrative poem, which is why it was just a mouthful. Is yeah. because there's like so much language that's like just embellished yeah. upon. Very little, very little stopping point, like opportunity to stop and stuff. Although I, when I was kind of doing a little bit of research for this episode, just a tiny bit, I read that the author is not actually 100% verified. I mean, that's just kind of a given with most ancient literature, right? That's not super mm -hmm. notable, is it? Yeah, I mean, we're not sure if, you know, for example, Shakespeare even really existed. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people that don't believe that. Um, or that he was, like, the pseudonym of a bunch of playwrights right. that, you know, just kind of got together. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's entirely plausible. Um, I do have to note that I have a copy that's been kind of, like, simplified and... I translated, I say that with air quotes, translated into modern English by a man named Keith Baines. Um, and what he's done is he's actually cut out a lot of the frilly language. Hmm. So you just get like the story. Yeah. There's some descriptive language that's still left in, but it's kind it's, of a part um, of the genre. You can't really. Yeah. Like if, if you're interested in starting in on the myth of King Arthur, I would recommend trying to find that particular version of it. Actually, no. Hi. Sorry. Stop. <laughs> if you want to get into the myth of King Arthur, I would actually recommend that you start with T.H. White's The Once and Future King. Ah, okay. It's, it's a novel that's separated into books that detail very specific times of King Arthur's life. So it's not one big long narrative like from beginning to end. It's kind of split up. And the first book is one that we've actually already mentioned, which is The Sword and the Stone. Aha, yes. Yes, and I love how faithful the Disney movie is to the book. Oh, that's fortunate. Yeah, it really is. I have this imaginary, like, top five list of best movie adaptations kind of going in my head. Yeah. <laughs> and The Sword in the Stone is probably number two or three on that list. What's number because one out of curiosity? Fight Club. Yeah. I would, yeah, that's a, that's, uh, yeah, good. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hundred percent accurate. You're I, right. Yeah, it is even better, <laughs> better than the book. I dare say. So it's, I, I mean, I just, I love the sword in the stone adaptation for the same reason why I like the fight club adaptation, which is not only does it hit all of the major plot points and details extremely faithfully, mm -hmm. but it keeps the author's voice intact. Yeah. And T.H. White is an extremely humorous writer and anyone that has seen the movie knows that there's, like, a lot of really funny parts to it. Mm -hmm. So with the exception of, like, some of the songs, just know that as you're watching the movie, like, that is pretty much exactly what the book is like. That's awesome. It's, yeah, it's really, really nice. Um, which actually segues into the next point. We know why King Arthur was romanticized and was still a popular legend like a millennia ago. Uh -huh. Why has the myth been so pervasive that we're still creating movie adaptations of the myth? Because it's really easy to list like five or six movies off the top of your head that have to do with the King Arthur myth that mm -hmm. were made even in the last few decades. 
Um, and if you look at the history of cinema, you can actually see that some of the very first movies that were made, period, had to do with the King Arthur myth. Huh. It's, I What's mean, so special about it? Yeah. And as I was thinking about this topic, I was like, this is kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, we have to address the fact that so many people like it that we keep on churning out all of these adaptations of it. Right. You know, and we've already mentioned the Sword in the Stone, but we also have Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's right. an insanely popular cult classic. Yeah, I um, <laughs> King Arthur, like the 2004 version with mm-hmm. Keira Knightley. Do you remember that? Yep. Uh, King Arthur Legend of the Sword, which came out last year. Now, at some point, you just wonder if they're named King Arthur because it's such a recognizable name now that people are like, oh, okay, yeah, I, 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 remember, I like King Arthur. Who doesn't like King Arthur, you know? And all it has to be is a medieval setting with a man named King Arthur who's, you know, similar to the original character. I don't know. Like, are all of them just the same story with the Knights of the Round Table? No, they're not. There's a lot of different adaptations that some of them will focus more on, like, King Arthur's ideology. Some of them will focus a little bit more on, like, the adventure aspect. Mm-hmm. But it it still doesn't really answer the question, like, why are we still doing this? Yeah. Why is this a thing? And I was actually, like, stuck in front of my computer as I was writing up notes for this episode. And I was like... I can't think of the answer to this. I can't do it. And, like, it was almost freaky because that afternoon, like, within an hour of me having this problem, my dad sent me this article <laughs> on, the, like, why we like stories of good guys versus bad guys. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading through it, I was like, oh, my gosh, this answers my question. So yeah. that's another article that I will link to on my Twitter. Cool. But is that exactly what it is? It's just a classic story of good versus evil? Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of interesting because back in our episode when I talk about non-Disney fairy tales, I mentioned that there are a lot of tales that are difficult to adapt because there are no clear-cut good guys or bad guys. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah. There are protagonists and antagonists, maybe, or maybe it's the main character versus fate, but oftentimes they're just stories about people making decisions and dealing with the consequences of those decisions. And modern audiences aren't really interested in those kinds of stories anymore. We like stories of good guys versus bad guys. Yeah. And sometimes we like to go a little more in depth and have redemption stories for the bad guys and stories of personal growth for the good guys, but... Ultimately, we're looking at the same formula, which is us, <laughs> which are people with a good sense of morality, yeah. or who are, you know, the people that we empathize with and live vicariously through, and then them, the people with the bad moral compass, who we don't have to empathize with because they're bad people. Right. And the myth of King Arthur, by its very nature, follows this pattern, As I mentioned before, his origin comes from this romantic idea of a guy that was able to rally troops to defend their lifestyle against those that would want to destroy it. Mm -hmm. As the myth was expanded upon, more cut-and-dry villains were introduced, the most famous perhaps being Morgan Le Fay, who is King Arthur's half-sister and usually portrayed as an enchantress or a sorceress, and also her son, Mordred. 
There were monsters as well, of course, and the tale of King Arthur usually ends with the portrayal of Lancelot and Guinevere. So if you want to count them as like antagonists, you can. But it's kind of hard because they were also, you know, his wife and right-hand man. So yeah, like make what you will of that. So like the TLDR version is it's a tale that's already <laughs> built for modern adaptations. Yeah. Which brings me to my next point. I'm on a roll here. You're on a roll, it, girl. I'm on a roll. It's actually a super simple story to adapt however you want. And the fact that Arthur's origin is not exactly commonly known, nor is it even entirely clear where it came from, just makes it that much easier to adapt how you want to adapt it. Mm-hmm. Not all adaptations have Arthur starting out as a boy abandoned by his father, later to find out that he was to be king by pulling a sword out of a stone. Some interpretations focus more on his adventures, while others focus more on his political (laughs) philosophies. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, let's talk about adaptations, yeah? Yeah! Yeah! Um, We've already covered, I think, Sword in the Stone pretty well, and that is a very, very good direct adaptation of a version of the story. I do also have to throw in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and I know it makes you go, ugh. It's fine. We can talk. It's it's fun to talk about. I just can't watch it without wanting to pull my hair out. I don't know. It's just so, (laughs) it's so cheesy. And I like cheesy, but it's just too much. (laughs) I don't know. Well, and here's the thing. Maybe this will change your outlook on it. It's actually pretty accurate in its depictions of the knights. Yeah. After all, it is a satire, and for satire to work, it generally needs to have a pretty strong basis in reality. So I don't know, like, this may change your view on it, but when you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, it's satire... I, I don't know. It kind of changes my yeah, perspective on it. Yeah, and I guess I did see the satire. When I did watch it and people told me it was a satire, I didn't have a full grasp on what that meant, so I thought it was just, like, being really stupid when it's just a little bit more, like, I don't know. I I'm What I'm saying is I should probably give it another chance. It's been a long time. Yeah. And it's one of those weird cult movies that for some reason Mormons in particular really Oh, my gosh. I was about to say the same thing, too. Why? I don't, I don't get it. It's kind I of, really honestly don't get honestly, it. it's kind of the same thing with the Princess Bride. There's something about that kind of um, uh, aesthetic maybe in a movie. I know they don't really, they don't have the same setting or anything, but I mean, the old medieval kind of movies or something maybe is just, I don't know, I don't connects know. with Mormons. <laughs> I guess. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is really quotable. Yeah. And it is really funny. There are some parts that you just kind of look at and you're like, hold on a second. This is not Mormon family friendly. Yeah, there's some there's some subtle and not so subtle little jokes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I don't know. I don't know why. And I know that Monty Python and the Holy Grail is kind of a cult classic in general. Mm-hmm. So I know it's not particular to Mormons. It's just that I feel like when you meet that person that can quote the whole movie, they are generally a Mormon dude. Oh, yeah. And they don't really really get the hint that you're like, oh, we believe that you can quote the whole thing. You don't have to prove. Okay, well, I mean, yeah, that's great. It's been like 20 minutes. We definitely believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Something to prove. (sighs) I guess. But yeah, like if you look at the, the knights that are featured, I think the only one that's like kind of, eh, I don't really believe 
that they put a lot of effort into is Sir Robin. Mm-hmm. But like Sir Galahad, the pure, and you look at some of his myths and oh yeah, he was like one of the knights that was chosen to actually go find the Holy Grail because he was so pure. And like Sir Lancelot and mm-hmm. like there are actual <laughs> knights that existed in very common myths that they included in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And it's just fascinating to me that, I don't know, like, I think that they are really smart guys. It's it's hard to have such a successful, like, satirical yeah. empire, really, uh, <laughs> without actually being very smart about it. Yeah, that's true. I tend to actually kind of sort these out into um, different groups, I guess, mm-hmm. of, <laughs> like... Are they direct adaptations? Are they, like, derivative? Are they kind of King Arthur adjacent? And honestly, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Sword in the Stone are pretty much the only direct adaptations that I could actually think of. Oh, huh. Yeah, and you um, did you find the rest just by Googling? Are there a lot? There's, I mean, there's a ton. Yeah. Well, and, like, there's a lot that, like, I'll name off and you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's a thing that exists. It's just that since they're more derivative, it's harder to think of them right mm-hmm. off the bat. So, like, the King Arthur 2004 film with Keira Knightley. There's that. It's, nah, like, it's not a great adaptation. I remember watching it, but I don't remember any of the story. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it's just a super forgettable film. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they tried to do something a little bit more original. Yeah. And because it was very derivative of the King Arthur myth, um, it just kind of floundered. And it just kind of was, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't see Legend of the Sword that came out last year. Oh, man. Nick I saw it. Either. He said that it was a good action film. Yeah, honestly, I think I think I'm not familiar with a lot of them because it's just not my genre. I love yeah. the story and the aesthetic and I liked reading about it and I really like just, you know, the whole reputation surrounding the story, but for some reason when it comes down to like watching actors portray it, I don't know, I'd much rather I'd much rather read about it in a more stylistic kind of language than just watch another action movie, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, and then that kind of brings me to my next point, which is they're not all action movies. Mm. And it it just kind of begs the question, what is it about it that people want to adapt, but people forget so easily? Like, Shrek the Third actually (laughs) features King Arthur. That's true. And no one likes that movie, but I really liked it because it was Justin Timberlake. (laughs) Yeah. I I haven't watched it since it came out. Like, I literally watched it in the theaters and that was it. I freaking loved it. But, yeah, like, I forgot that Justin Timberlake plays Arthur and now I'm like, oh, I don't like the Shrek franchise, but I do really like JT. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. And honestly, most of the Shrek movies just kind of have that awesome music. And the third one was, was, it was not as good as the first and the second, obviously, but the soundtrack was on point. Which is nice. just my little plug. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I might, I might venture. I just, ugh, I'm, ugh, I don't really like Shrek. I, I just, I don't. No, it's fair. I generally like DreamWorks movies, but there is something about Shrek that I'm just like, 
Why yeah. did you pursue this for so long? I started loving Shrek because it was still, it was, they were still good movies and not like bad movies for a kid to watch, which, you know, I didn't want to watch movies that were like above my age, you know, whatever, but they were still like edgy enough to be really cool in my opinion. So I watched them all the time because they always had these really edgy jokes and it was still tame enough for my parents to be okay with me to watch, but still like edgy enough to be able to make these jokes that were like kind of adult ish jokes, you know? And, and yeah, yeah, and I really liked the music and I don't know. I freaking loved those movies. I haven't watched them since I stopped living at my parents' house though. When I went to college because they have the DVDs. I haven't seen them for years. Yeah, it's been years. But yeah, I understand when people when why people don't like them. They're just yeah, kind of cringy sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's probably the element that I'm not a fan of is that it's just yeah, it's just cringy. And like, there's a few jokes that I remember, but mostly because they're the ones that were repeated over and over and over and over again when the movies released. Mm-hmm. It's just like yes. I know you're making waffles in the morning. Yeah. You don't have to tell me a thousand <laughs> times. Uh, I get it. I get it. It's funny. Waffles are a breakfast food. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, I, I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of different things that are kind of derivative like that. Apparently the last Transformers movie is based in the King Arthur legend. Like, really? the subtitle was The Last Night, and oh. I didn't really think much of it, but apparently it's because Transformers existed on Earth in the time of King Arthur, uh. and King Arthur charged the Transformers with some task or artifacts. I don't know. There I are very, it, <laughs> there are very <laughs> few things in this world care. that I care less about than Transformers. <sighs> and, you know, I would probably really still like the first movie if it had ended there yeah they just oh it's just they're so poorly made well not i wouldn't even say poorly made because they're well funded but they're just so unoriginal they're just so cookie cutter they're so boring well it feels like like what's the difference between the first one and the third one Nothing. I, like, I don't know. I, you could probably plop me down in front of any one of them, and I would be like, I don't know. Yeah, which one Shia, this is. Shia, and Hot Girl, and robots, and <laughs> yeah. explodes, and then it turned into um, Marky Mark, and then Hot Girl and robots. Oh yeah, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's it's a uh, it's worth noting. It is worth noting. Uh, I do also want to note. A couple more. There is Merlin, the BBC TV series, which was really, Hmm. really popular. Uh, I tried getting into that, and I just couldn't, because it starts when King Arthur is, like, a teenager, and in this world, magic is outlawed, and so Merlin becomes, like, King Arthur's servant. I, I don't remember. That's weird. But he has to keep his magic a secret, and it's just, I don't know. I really, I couldn't get on board with it, I think mostly because of that particular premise. Because Merlin is such a big part of the King Arthur myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you have Pretty this, central. like, sage, wise old dude that is able to cast magic, but he generally doesn't, unless it's for a very, very good yeah. reason. You know? And uh, 
just making Merlin like the same age as King Arthur and King Arthur is like the spoiled brat and he's self-centered. I don't know. He probably gets better as the series goes on, but I watched like the first four or five episodes and I was like, this is so tiring. Yeah. (laughs) I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. I, and I'm probably going to get a lot of people saying like, no, you just have to give it a chance. You have to get past a certain episode and then it's really good from there. Yeah. And I'll believe them because people told me that about Parks and Recreation. And (laughs) once I finally got back to it, I was like, this is one of the greatest television shows totally. ever made. <laughs> totally. Yeah, but like that was really popular. And then I do also want to mention briefly the King Arthur arc in the Once Upon a Time TV show, mm-hmm. which I watched a good chunk of that show. Um, in fact, I think that the King Arthur arc happens in season like six or something like that. Yeah. And it was actually that particular arc that made me stop watching the TV show. It made me so mad because they took this wonderful idea of like this kind, benevolent king and all of his Knights of the Round Table and his beautiful wife, Guinevere, and they just pooped on it. <laughs> just pooped directly onto this idea. Yeah, well, that's too bad. <laughs> Where... Where Camelot doesn't actually exist. It's an illusion created by King Arthur because he's power hungry and he cast a spell on Guinevere to make her love him instead of Lancelot. And like, he's a villain. He's not a good guy. And it just makes me so angry. Right. (laughs) Because you can change the story however you want. But ultimately, King Arthur has to be the good guy. Yeah, I would say so. That's pretty central. Blech. Blech. That's what I have to say to that. Blech. Were there any that you, uh, besides the ones you've already mentioned, are there any more that you particularly liked? Yeah. Now, my favorite adaptations are the ones that are like, this is the third category that I mentioned, which is King Arthur adjacent, um, rather than a direct interpretation of it. Like, for example, my first memory of this sort of genre is when I was a kid watching the movie Quest for Camelot, which my family didn't own it, but I remember wanting to watch it whenever we went to my aunt's house. Uh, She lived in Reno. Mm -hmm. We lived in Provo. So it was kind of one of those like big road trip things. And we'd stop there and we'd stay for a few nights. And yeah, she owned Quest for Camelot. And I remember the bright colors and the main character was a female and I just wanted to watch it. And I tried rewatching it for this particular episode of the podcast. Oh. And it is horribly cheesy and the songs aren't very good at all. Oh. But it is still notable in that it is Camelot adjacent, and that's kind of my first memory of that. Mm-hmm. Because King Arthur doesn't feature prominently in the story. Like he's there and obviously like by the title you can tell Quest for Camelot. Sure. Like, that's what it's about, but it's not focused on King Arthur or his knights. That's fair. I I remember, oh man, I remember watching that movie when I was young. It kind of gave me nightmares at some point. Um, <laughs> Did it really? Yeah, well, there's a part where they, like, drop them in this weird radioactive stuff that turns them into monsters or something. Do you remember that? Oh, I don't. But like I said, I, I very... I put in a very minimal effort sure. into trying to rewatch the movie and oh, <laughs> just man. like, nope, I've, nope, nope, nope. I've not thought about that movie for years, but you're right. The music is super, super cheesy. Um, I also really like The Sorcerer's Apprentice 
And it's kind of one of those oh my gosh. guilty pleasure movies. No. <laughs> you love Nick Cage. I know I love Nick Cage, but I hate, I hate those, I just hate those types of movies. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't even know how to describe that type of movie. I think it's just like, I just want to call it the Disney grab. I just want to say it's the Disney grab and it has, it has a familiar face like him, really spunky, you know, lead character, modern music, kind of edgy teenage. I don't know. I, I'm just crapping all over a movie you really like and I feel bad, but I just, <laughs> no. I, can't, I can't, I can't stand don't those types of movies. Don't feel bad because for me, it's a so bad it's good movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And see, that's kind of the principle behind my love for Nick Cage. So I shouldn't even be, you know, touting that as religiously as I am because I I don't know I break my own rule all the time he's on the bottom of my water bottle I'm looking at him right now <laughs> hi Nick hi Nick oh. he says hi he tells you he's he's telling you I'm going to stay the Declaration of Independence <laughs> over the summer for my family re- reunion we were at my cabin and we had all of these little cousins running around needing to be entertained and stuff and I managed to kill like an hour entertaining a group of like six-year-old kids with this Nick Cage sticker at the bottom of my water bottle and chasing them around and talking (laughs) in his voice and stuff. They just, they thought it was so funny and it was, it was such a useful little toy. It wasn't even a toy as my water bottle, but they just thought it was the funniest thing. I actually still have it on my to-do list to send them all a Nick Cage sticker. I'd like them all. (laughs) I want them all to have one of their own. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And so one of the wonderful things about having Nick Cage in a role in a movie like mm-hmm. The Sorcerer's Apprentice is that he is forced to say words like Merlinians and Morganians. <laughs> <It's so laughs> you're making me you're making me really want to watch it. <laughs> I don't that's another movie that I don't think I've seen ever since it came out and that was one movie where I was like I really want to see it. But I don't want to see it in the regular theater. I only want to pay a buck to see it. Mm-hmm. We're going to see it in the dollar theater. Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's what we did. And I laughed. Yep. And I remember being like, nah, that was a really bad movie. But I don't know if it's just like time or what. But the more I think about it, the more yeah. I'm like, I really want to rewatch it. I really do. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we should just, yeah, we should have a marathon. I mean, I know there's a bunch of movies we have to watch before the Oscars come, which is going to be like an impossible task. But we should just, you know, add this one to our fictional, not fictional, we should add this one to our figurative (laughs) list of movies that we need to watch together. I'd love to watch this one. Um, What else is there? Uh, Do you remember Gargoyles, the the mid-90s Disney animated series? Yeah, that's that's a King yeah. Arthur adjacent one. Obviously, the main bulk of the series is in New York in modern times. Yeah, but if you watch the origin episode, like takes <laughs> place during King Arthur times, so that counts. It counts. I guess that's fair. I mean, I love gargoyles, so I'll say that it counts. Just so we can, so we can keep it in the episode. Yeah, that was actually one of the themes, and when we were doing our uh, Saturday morning cartoon episode. And you picked some random, a oh, random yeah, yeah, yeah. song off of my list of themes. It was on there. It didn't get clicked, but um, I actually did not recognize the theme. It had been mm. such a long time since I had seen it that it was just, oh, but man, the gargoyles, the actual gargoyles themselves. Oh, I mean, it was, was really memorable. good character design. I think that it's yeah. it's a really good indication of how good the series was, 
and that you look at the character design and you're like, oh yeah, no, that that's not mm-hmm. like super duper 90s or, you know, there, it's not super indicative of the time period that it was created. It's it's yeah. almost timeless, if I dare say so. And there's just a lot of different tales of like King Arthur's knights that we could go into. A lot of them don't get a lot of love just because they tend to be very much the same over and over and over again, which is the knights go out mm-hmm. on a quest, they meet a maiden who is generally either already betrothed or married or something, and they end mm-hmm. up completing the quest and along the way, they end up taking this maiden for themselves. Yeah, and you know, that reminds me, I, th- I guess I should have tried talking about this when we were talking about like the actual old literary, you mm-hmm. know, versions of King Arthur. But it's it, it's a huge theme that, that finding, finding the woman or somehow there being a woman involved that you can't really have in the way that you want. Like, you can't marry her because she's either, like, betrothed or, you know, you're committed to, I don't know, it's, uh, what is it, is it called chivalry? Is that what the, is that what the theme is called? Is, like, I feel like it's this, this far, um, admiring from afar, mm. you know, this kind of love that can't, uh, oh, what's it called? It's called, oh, this is driving me insane. It's called courtly love. <laughs> <laughs> It's called courtly love, where it's it's you're in love with this woman, but only to the extent of, you know, seeing from her from afar and just kind of being in pain mm-hmm. yourself because you just can't you can't you can't be with her. But it's yeah, that's um, that's what I thought of when you said that they they meet this woman, but it's she's already betrothed or something like that. And it's this idea of like self-denial yeah. almost which is kind of like weird to me that that's a that that would be a, but if, you know i guess of course it would be a um a pretty old theme it's just kind of yeah it's kind yeah. of weird but yeah and i would recommend checking out the podcast myths and legends there's mm-hmm. over a hundred stories that are covered uh and they cover stories from all around the world but there are quite a few episodes on king arthur and his knights of the round table you can easily pick those yeah. out, and um, the narrator cool. goes into kind of humorous detail on the way that these knights behaved themselves <laughs> in, uh-huh. in the original <laughs> versions, which is to say, not particularly well. Well, good. That's good to know. Yeah. I'll have to look but into it. there is one tale that I think kind of stands out uh, when, when it comes to the knights of the round table, um, independent of Arthur himself. And that is the tale of the Green Knight. Yeah, yeah. Sir Gawain. That's right. And I really like this story because it does involve him pining after a woman at one point, but like, it doesn't turn out in his favor in the end. So I kind of like that. Yeah. And I kind of, I don't know why I'm saying kind of, I really like the moral of the story, <laughs> which is being true to your word and carrying yourself in an honorable way the entire way through whatever task it is you have to complete. Yeah, that's another huge theme in medieval literature. It's always just, like, Mm -hmm. honor, you know, honor-bound. Yeah. And there's a really good adaptation that's actually made for kind of young readers, um, kids who are maybe getting into chapter books for the first time, called Augie and the Green Knight. It's really, really charming. So it's the tale of the Green Knight, but it's kind of told more from the side of the Green Knight. Because in the original tale, he's kind of this very mysterious figure that shows up, does his thing, leaves, and Gowan has to go and complete his quest that has to do with this Green Knight, 
right? So Mm -hmm. the story centers on the Green Knight side of the story, and actually um, the main character is this little girl, um, this modern little girl who gets kind of transported back to medieval times. She is very scientifically minded. She's very rational in the way that she thinks and the way that she problem solves. And it is just a really, really good book for honestly anybody to read, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. particularly for young readers, because it shows them like the moral of the story in a way that's not just like hitting you over the head. And it shows you like, yes, little girls can be rational and they can be helpful and they can do all of these things, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. and they're not just like humoring her. You know, they're trying to take her seriously the whole time. So it's really cute. Yeah. Um, the art is done by Boulet, who is a French artist. Uh, he does really amazing stuff. If you have the chance to watch him, like, actually do some of his art, he doesn't do any sketching. He just takes his pen and he draws what he wants to draw. And it is fascinating mm-hmm. to watch because as someone who has taken a couple of art classes, I just kind of look at that and I'm like, Oh, how, how, (laughs) how do you do that? How do you not have a (laughs) sketch that you're like cleaning up? This is crazy. Yeah. So I have a print of one of his uh, pieces in my living room, actually. I also want to talk about one of the two books that have managed to make me cry. And the first one is The Elegance of the Hedgehog, which you recommended to me. And uh, (laughs) yeah, really? I am so honored. Oh, that kind of makes me feel bad, though. I'm sorry. It no, made you it was cry. a good cry. It was very cathartic. <laughs> yeah. It was it was cathartic yeah. in that I had like I I was finishing the book out of stubbornness more than anything because I was getting yeah, through the book. I, get and I was just like, I don't like these characters. They're selfish. They're self centered. Yeah. They don't get what real life is like. And then the thing happens at the end, and I just started crying, and I was like. Oh no, it was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it was worth finishing yeah. the book. So that was one of the two books that made me cry. But the other one is cool. again a King Arthur adjacent book. Um it is called The Water Series by an author named Kara Dalkey. She writes mostly for mm-hmm. again young readers. So I read this book when I was oh 13 years old, maybe 12 or 13 years old. And it was funny because my mom bought the first book for me. And she was like, I think you're going to like this. It's about mermaids. And I was like, I've never read a mermaid book before, but okay, whatever. I I mean, I read a thousand <laughs> books when I was a kid. So I was like, eh, okay. Right. <laughs> and it turns out that it was the first of three books. And I was like, mom, I have to get the next ones. I have to, I have to. And it's weird because like I said, it's about mermaids. And then there's this guy in Britain who ends up getting caught up in all of these mermaid politics. It's a lot better than it sounds, trust me. And then at the very, 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 very end, you find out that the guy was actually Merlin, and the girl in the series is actually the Lady of the Lake. And I remember reading that, and I was Mm -hmm. like, this book series tricked me. (laughs) But also I cried, because they were supposed to be in love, and they were separated, and it was so sad. But then they saw each other at the end. That is sad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it was still sad because they had to spend decades apart. Yeah, that still sounds yeah. really sad. But that was that was kind of not my first um, 
experience with Camelot adjacent uh, media, but it was definitely the most notable one. I still own those books and I am never getting rid of them. Never, ever, ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cherish yeah. those. So that is, that's, that's my experience with King Arthur in, in pop culture. Yeah. That's a lot more. Yeah. It's there. It's, it's a lot more all over the place than I kind of expected. I mean, I had a few things in mind when we were going to record this that you would probably bring up, but there was just a lot more than I anticipated. <laughs> I guess, you know, in some way I never thought of um, Monty Python. I, I mean, of course it's a rendition. I just never really, I never, that never locked in for me, mm-hmm. you know, but there's just a lot of little loose interpretations out there that are easily missed. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the key to it. And and like I mentioned, it's very much a, like, you have to remember that it is a tale of good versus evil. And that's kind of what appeals to modern audiences. Artistic interpretation kind of runs wild from there. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Thanks for, thanks for teaching me a few things I didn't know. Oh, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do have to give a special shout out to our friend Addie, who actually brought this yeah. up months and months and months ago. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not a topic that I would have thought of on my own, but she asked, I don't, I don't even remember what the original question was that she asked about it, but mm-hmm. she did ask about, like, what are the origins of King Arthur or something like that? And I was like, huh, I don't know. But it sure seems to be popular. Why is that? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's, oh. it's been enlightening for me, too. Yeah, good. I, I now have this knowledge of King Arthur that is probably never going to leave my brain because I really don't know how it's going to apply in real life Yeah, outside of the podcast. That's fair. <laughs> and I have a knack for remembering things that I don't ever really need to use ever again. So Yeah, I understand that. But it's fun. And maybe as we look at media in the future, we can be a little bit more observant about the origins of certain tales. And Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's a lot of tales that we didn't cover uh, in today's episode just because they are very, very numerous. Right. Uh, We've got, and I feel bad, I I didn't even mention A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which was a novel that Mark Twain wrote. Uh, It was... Partly satirical, but it was about a Connecticut Yankee that gets transported back in time to King Arthur's court. (laughs) And there's actually been quite a few adaptations of that particular story, too, that, I mean, we could spend another half hour going into. Oh, yeah. Uh, But it does exist. I I do want to, you know, let people know I have not forgotten about that. It's just, it's a lot to go into. And, uh, you know, a lot of the tales, I mean, really... I don't know if you can place a definitive number on how many knights were part of the round table, just because, I mean, there's so many different interpretations and so many of them, like, maybe were banished or maybe they came on late in the game or, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got, again, Lancelot that betrayed Arthur and ultimately led to Arthur's downfall and death. And (laughs) it's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot, but it's uh, good. Yeah, it is good. Yeah. So uh, I think that's going to do it for us. Cool. 
Yeah. That was very interesting. Very informative. <laughs> Thanks. Any final thoughts? Um, no. Um, I want to watch Shrek now. Like, I mean, up until the third one, probably. So I might end up doing that <laughs> at some point this week. Just yeah. because now I have an inkling to. Yeah. Because there's like, what, seven of them? Oh, yeah. But I don't... <laughs> I yeah honestly I didn't know that they were still making them I thought it ended with the third one which was a huge step down from the first and the second one anyway so I was like okay they're gonna be wise enough to call it yeah nope. I really I I actually have nope. no idea how many there are <laughs> yeah there's only three in my mind I think oh that's good I think that's good that's healthy to have a good cutoff kind of like with me and Supernatural uh, there are no seasons after season five. Mm -hmm. I think they're actually on season 13 now. So there's more seasons that I have not watched than I have. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. Sometimes you have to be like, this is a healthy cutoff. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. All right. Well, thank you for recording with me today, Carmen. You're welcome. Thanks for recording with me. I feel like Audrey and I, listeners, Audrey and I don't get to see each other super often anymore. Yeah. So every little bit of contact is appreciated. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And I think we are going to get back onto a regular update schedule again. We have plans for the next few episodes and our, our acts are finally back together. So yeah. So our next episode should come out on March 6th. Uh, so we'll be back to every other Tuesday. And we're really excited for some of the episodes that we have coming up. We have mm -hmm. more guests coming on the show. We're going to be doing a few more topical uh, sort of episodes. Uh, we're going to try and slip in an Oscars-themed episode around the time that the yes. show uh, comes about and, and talk about the history of the Oscars. So that'll be mm -hmm. a good one. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. Yeah. So we're, we're back. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Uh, as always, you can check us out on social media in addition to uh, our podcast. If you want to get a little Kitten Whiskers and Kanye fix in between mm -hmm. episodes, you mm -hmm. can find us on Twitter at Kittens and Kanye. Or Instagram at Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. And so we hope to see you there. And until we record next time, I'm Audrey Stratton. I'm Carmen Thorley. And this has been Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. Mm -hmm.